Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Remembering Rosa Parks, The Radical Faith of a Rebel Christian. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 7th, 2013. <clears throat> Two months ago, Beacon Press released a new biography of Rosa Parks to coincide with the 100th anniversary of her birth on February the 4th, 1913. The title of the book is The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks by Jean Theo Harris. Remarkably, it's the first comprehensive and critical biography of one of the most important women in American history. Rosa Parks' many awards included a Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest award given by the executive branch of government, and the Congressional Gold Medal, the highest honor bestowed by the legislative branch. When she died in 2005, <clears throat> at the age of 92, Parks became the first woman, the second black, and only the third private citizen to lie in honor in the Capitol Rotunda. Most people remember Rosa Parks for her iconic act on December the 1st, 1955, in Montgomery, Alabama. After working all day as a seamstress at a department store, at about 6 p.m., Parks boarded a bus to go home. She paid her fare and sat down in the first row of seats that were reserved for blacks. When the front of the bus reserved for white people filled up, the bus driver moved the colored sign behind Parks, then told her and three other blacks to move to the back to accommodate the white passengers. Her three seatmates moved. Rosa Parks did not move. When that white driver stepped back toward us, she later recalled, when he waved his hand and ordered us up and out of our seats, I felt a determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. When he saw me still sitting, he asked if I was going to stand up, and I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, if you don't stand up, I'm going to have to call the police and have you arrested. And I said, you may do that. The bus driver did call the police, who arrested Parks for violating Montgomery's segregation laws. She was also fired from her job. About 24 hours later, a friend bailed her out of jail. But her quiet act of civil disobedience jump-started the Montgomery bus boycott three days later, on December the 4th. The nonviolent protest lasted 381 days until the Supreme Court ruled in Browder v. Gale, 1956, that bus segregation was illegal. <clears throat> Theo Harris's new biography dispels two common myths about Rosa Parks. First, she was no meek or accidental heroine. In fact, Parks had been an active member of the Civil Rights Movement since 1943. She said, 
People always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I wasn't tired physically, oh no, oh, or no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. And I was not old, although some people have an image of me as being old. I was 42. No, the only tired I was, was tired of giving in. And secondly, her refusal to give up her seat was not the random act of a single day. Earlier that summer, for example, she had attended a school in Tennessee for civil rights training. Instead, says Theo Harris, Parks dedicated 60 years of her life to political activism in the cause of social justice. In Parks' own words, she said, I had almost a life history of being rebellious against being mistreated because of my color. Rosa Parks' political activism and civil disobedience were rooted in her Christian faith. Theo Harris describes Parks as a staunch and active Christian. She carried her Bible with her and was a lifelong member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. That's sort of in my family background too, said Parks, the Lord's power within me to do what I have done. She led a life of rich and active worship in both Montgomery and Detroit, where she was a deaconess. Her Christian faith nourished her beliefs in human dignity, equality, the long struggle against racism, and the Christian responsibility to act. She responded to death threats with a prolonged period of prayer in church, after which, writes Theo Harris, an intense calm swept over her. In Parks' own autobiography, the, uh, called My Story, she says, From my upbringing in the Bible, I learned people should stand up for rights, just as the children of Israel stood up to the Pharaoh. Rosa Parks lived the truth of two texts from this week's lectionary. Acts 5.29, We must obey God rather than men. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. If Jesus is king and lord over all earthly rulers, then the Roman Caesar was decidedly not lord at all. Despite his claim that the Roman state was divine and his cult of imperial worship, the two readings remind us that Christians should never confuse the relative claim to render to Caesar what is Caesar's with the absolute and unconditional claim to render to God what is God's. As much as possible, we honor the king, says 1 Peter 2.17, and the laws of the land. But as Rosa Parks so bravely demonstrated, it is God alone whom we fear. To obey God rather than man, wrote the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan, and I quote, and to protest that human laws of the state and nation cannot contravene the divine law of the sovereign God has been the unanimous teaching of both the Old and New Testament, as well as the subsequent history of the church 
since the earliest centuries. Moses before Pharaoh, Elijah before Ahab and Jezebel, John the Baptist before Herod, Paul before the Sanhedrin and before Festus, and Ambrose before Theodosius, Theodore of Studios before Constantine VI, Luther before Charles V at the Diet of Worms, and Martin Luther King before the power structure of white America. All these were expressing the obligation to appeal from the abuse of political power by human authorities to the ultimate sovereignty of God. And so too Rosa Parks. For books this week, I review a novel by Dave Eggers. It's called A Hologram for the King. San Francisco, McSweeney's Books, 2012, 312 pages. <clears throat> Alan Clay is 54. He's in Saudi Arabia at the King Abdullah Economic City, K-A-E-C, which sounds grandiose, but is instead way underwhelming. At KAEC, he joins three young techies from Reliant, the world's largest IT supplier. They are there to make a presentation of Reliant's holographic teleconference system to the king. But their first and biggest problem is a weak Wi-Fi signal. This doesn't sound good. If they can close the deal, Alan is sure that the financial rewards would, quote, fix everything that ailed him. That would be asking a lot. Alan Clay is broke, unemployed, unable to pay his daughter's college tuition, owes significant money to many friends, is sleeping poorly, and divorced from his second wife, Ruby. Oh, did I mention he has a lump on his neck? Still, he wants to make something of his life, and, quote, when shaved and dressed, he passed for legitimate, end quote. He's something of a loser, but his biggest problem is his self-loathing. He knows that his three younger colleagues look down on him. As the years rolled by, there was less and less work for someone like him. His work history began with selling fuller brushes, then progressed to manufacturing Schwinn bicycles, which were then outsourced to overseas. Now he's on the other side of the world trying to sell a tech gadget. Alan Clay is a broken man, and he symbolizes a broken moment in the American economy. Waiting for the king, which is a bit like waiting for Godot who never comes, Clay has nothing to do. He can only brood about his life in a lonely hotel room with no bar downstairs. Does his life have meaning? What about the rocky relationship with his daughter, an estranged wife? Sure, he's imperfect and there's no path towards perfection, but he still dreams for something big, albeit like Willie Loman of old. And the lump on his neck worries him, as well it should. In the last pages, he pitches the holograph to the king. 
but the presentation was short. And then who were those Chinese meeting with His Royal Highness afterwards? The New York Times listed Dave Eggers' Elegaic Story as one of the top ten books of 2012. Dave Eggers, A Hologram for the King. For a film this week, I review Zero Dark Thirty from 2012. Director Catherine Bigelow's so-called historical drama about the hunt for and capture of Osama bin Laden earned five Academy Award nominations, but not without significant controversy. Any film putatively based on actual events will make viewers wonder about the boundary between historical facts and cinematic fiction. Others have raised ethical questions about the portrayals of the torture of detainees. And still more controversy surrounds the access of classified information to make the film. But there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Most critics have loved this film. I thought it had a more fundamental problem in casting Jessica Chastain as the zealous rookie CIA officer named Maya who, as the heroine, does what no one else has been able to do. In fact, when we watched the movie, there were at least three times when the audience laughed when Chastain was playing super tough. Nonetheless, the reenactment of the May 2, 2011 invasion of Osama bin Laden's compound by Navy SEALs is truly amazing. Zero Dark Thirty <clears throat> And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by George Herbert. George Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633. And in light of Easter, it's called The Cross. What is this strange and uncouth thing to make me sigh and seek and faint and die until I had some place where I might sing and serve thee and not only I, but all my wealth and family might combine to set thy honor up as our design. And then, when after much delay, much wrestling, many a combat, this dear end, so much desired is given to take away my power to serve thee, to unbend all my abilities, my designs confound, and lay my threatening bleeding on the ground. One ague dwelleth in my bones, another in my soul. The memory, what, would, what I would do for thee if once my groans could be allowed for harmony. I am in all a weak disabled thing, save in the sight thereof where strength doth sting. Besides, things sort not to my will, even when my will doth study thy renown. Thou turnest the edge of all things on me still, taking me up to throw me down. So that, even when my hopes seem to be sped, I am to grief alive, to them as dead. 
To have my aim, and yet to be further from it then, when I bent my bow. To make my hopes my torture, and the fee of all my woes another woe. Is in the midst of delicates to need, and even in paradise to be a weed. Ah, my dear father, ease my smart. These contrarities crush me. These cross actions do wind a rope around and cut my heart. And yet, since these thy contradictions are properly a cross felt by the sun, with but four words, my words, thy will be done. George Herbert, The Cross Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April the 7th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.